A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. He would not, and this was the test, pretend to care about women when the only sex that attracted him was his own. He loved men and always had loved them. It's an account of a time that is essential to a queer history. And, you know, Forster referred to the queer past as a great unrecorded history. And a book like this could be part of that. I just feel like this place must have been part of that imagining for him. It's kind of cut off from the world. It's cut off by this bank. We can hardly see the road. And I like to think of Morris and Alec maybe still living in a place not too dissimilar to this. Once a term, the whole school went for a walk. That is to say the three masters took part, as well as all the boys. That's the first sentence of Morris the novel that E.M. Forster finished writing in 1914, but which remained unpublished throughout his lifetime. He showed the manuscript to a few close friends, but he felt unable to publish because his novel was a story of love between men and homosexuality remained illegal in England until 1967. When Forster wrote Morris, he had already published A Room with a View and Howard's End, and with the publication of A Passage to India in 1924, he earned an international reputation and became a truly famous author. But he never published another novel in his lifetime, though he lived until 1970. For 46 years, readers knew only five Forster novels. But in 1971, the year after he died, his sixth novel, Morris, was published for the first time. And in 1987, Forster's story gained a wider audience when it was adapted as a film by James Ivory and Ishmael Merchant, starring James Wilby, Rupert Graves, and a young Hugh Grant. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, I'm going to explore the city of Cambridge that Forster loved and wrote about, and then I'm going to escape it for the Greenwood countryside beyond. So I'm now standing in central Cambridge on Trumpington Street, outside 3 Trumpington Street, which is a, a dentist's today. But for several years, this was the rooms where E.M. Forster lodged. And 
it seems an appropriate place to start today's podcast and an appropriate place to meet our guest for today's episode, Dr. Diarmid Hester. Diarmid, welcome. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Henry. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, E.M. Forster. Dr. Diarmid Hester is a writer and a radical cultural historian and an authority on sexually dissident literature, art, film and performance. Diarmid has held fellowships at the Library of Congress, the British Library, New York University, the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge. He teaches at Cambridge's Faculty of English and is a research associate at Emmanuel College. He's the creator of A Great Recorded History, an audio trail of Cambridge focused on the city's LGBTQ plus past and the co-founder of Club Urania, a monthly performance and music night for queer people and their allies at Cambridge Junction. Diamond is the author of Wrong, a critical biography of Dennis Cooper, which came out in 2020. And his latest book, Nothing Ever Just Disappears, is a new history of queer culture through its spaces. And that's to be published by Penguin in spring 2023. And I believe that that audio trail features Ian Forster heavily. Well, Forster is, is a kind of a guiding presence for the audio trail. But really, I was only kind of able to get to grips with Forster and, and his relationship to the city of Cambridge in the book, Nothing Ever Just Disappears, uh-huh. which is a journey through the homes and haunts of queer figures. So artists and writers, some famous, some not famous. And what I try to do in, in the book is get a sense of, well, what was the influence of these places, these homes and, and spaces on the art and writing of these figures, and also, you know, how they in turn influenced those places. So Forster is a kind of a key moment in that for me, because um, nothing ever just disappears is a personal journey. Mm-hmm. And it starts out from my adopted home of Cambridge, and it starts with Ian Forster, who's the most famous gay adopted son of the city, I suppose. Well, I look forward to exploring the city with you today. In 1946, when Forster was 67, he returned to Cambridge as an honorary fellow at King's College, where he'd been an undergraduate. And for the first seven years of that time, he lodged in rooms here, as we said. And I guess he must have been in some of those upstairs rooms that we're looking at now. It's a sort of two-story building. The first floor is a is a dentist, as I say. The floors above have sash windows with white brickwork. It's hard to tell really what it's like inside. But he would have come out of this door and taken a short walk to King's College on a pretty much daily basis, I'd have thought. So why don't we follow in his footsteps and head towards the college that he loved? So, Diamond, you've already mentioned how... um, you know, there's a personal reason why your book begins with Forster and Morris. But how significant is this novel, Morris, to the story that you're telling? Well, I mean, Morris is so central to any history of queer mm-hmm. culture, you know. I mean, it's such an important tome in the gay canon, right? So I first came across it when I was uh, taking a, a master's course at the University of Sussex, um, under Alan Sinfield, um, what was known as the gay degree (laughs) in Sussex. (laughs) And so, you know, it has this kind of central place in in a gay canon. But it's also, you know, it's so multifaceted, right? it's, it's, It's a romance, you know, it's a story of love, you know, gained and lost and gained again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a, a coming of age novel, right? Definitely. So, so it's, it's a story of how a young man 
finds himself, right, and finds a way to live honestly, you know, without lying to himself or to the world, you know. But, it, yeah, it's also, you know, this incredibly important historical document. Okay, now that sounds pretty boring, but, I mean, Forster jazzes it up a bit, you know. <laughs> but it, it kind of gives us this window into a, a world where um, a certain sector of society was marginalised and demonised and criminalised by mainstream society for no other reason than what? Who they loved, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really instructive and I think that's something that needs to be remembered and that's why Morris will, will endure, you know? Absolutely. And I feel like um, it, it's also a perfect starting point for your book because Forster was so interested in places and spaces, wasn't he? He had a real, he had a, you know, he had this term, the genius Loki for places which had a kind of numinous, almost a sort of mystical significance for oh, him. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think the place of Cambridge when he came here at the age of 18 had this formative influence on him. Right? Uh -huh. And I think, you know, we're coming up here to where the road squeezes. So you can see the road squeezes yes, up ahead. Yes. And, and you get a real sense of, of, of the space of Cambridge, right? A How, kind of restrictive space. Yeah, it, it's very hemmed in by the kind of semi-private establishments of the college. You know, we're passing on our left here Peterhouse, uh, which is the oldest Cambridge college uh -huh. and probably one of the more conservative ones, which was founded in the, in the 13th century. And so we've got these kind of black wrought iron railings barring yes, access yes. in and out, you know. And over on the right, we've got uh, Pembroke, which is similarly kind of forbidding stone walls and edifices. And certainly a more progressive college. The master of the college these days is Chris Smith, who uh -huh. is uh, the first uh, openly gay MP. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, in terms of the space and the way that, that, that the space of Cambridge is laid out, you do get a sense of, well, things being quite cloistered, you know, uh -huh. things being quite squeezed and a little bit claustrophobic. And I think you can't really escape that sense. Well, it'll be fascinating to discuss how some specific spaces in this city affected Forster. But let's, let's turn to the novel now, Morris. And, Damon, would you... Would you be able to introduce this character to the listeners? Who is Morris Hall, who we follow through this book? So Morris is, let's say, a rather dull, bit snobbish lad who uh, arrives from the suburbs, as yes. Forster did. Um, you know, he's not exceptional. He's a regular guy, you know. And he's not especially likeable from the off. Mm -hmm. And I think having a character like Morris be the protagonist for a book like this shows a real kind of sympathy on, on Forster's part. One other thing Forster said was that, um, that in Morris I tried to create a character who was completely unlike myself or what I supposed myself to be. And I find that an interesting comment because maybe temperamentally, you know, he's not by nature an inward-looking academic Morris. He's a sort of, uh, as, he, as he says, he's a bit of a snob and but, but there are definitely some autobiographical elements in there, aren't there? Like his father dying young, like the coming from suburbia. You know, it's almost like Morris is, is what Forster might like to have been when he was feeling self-deprecating. Um, 
I, th I think that's true. You know, um, I think when we read um, that statement by Forrester, you know, that he uh, he kind of says that he's unlike him, we think, well, yeah, sure, you know, Morris was not an intellectual and so on. But, you know, over the course of the story, Morris turns out to be quite unconventional. True. You know? And Forrester was, you know, and he often... Uh, worried over this question of whether I am conventional right, or not. Right. And, I mean, he turned out to be quite conventional, you know. So Morris had a kind of an element of radicalism that Forrester didn't have. Aha, uh -huh. yes. Now, we're stepping onto King's Parade now, and gosh, the College of Kings really dominates this street, doesn't it? It's... Uh yeah, um, but I mean, of course, they've left us, you know, little um, barred windows just so we can see what we. Here's what you might have had. Um, uh, but I mean, and, and this is this is what I mean about the space of Cambridge. There's, there is a sense of a door will swing open and suddenly you'll see these gorgeous wildflower meadows and inklings of secret swimming pools and you know as we see here, you know, the kind of beautiful um, uh, tended lawns of King's College, but. You can't get at them. Got it. Got you know, it. you can't get at them unless you have the key. Right. But as we approach the main entrance, we can picture Forster, aged 18 in 1897, arriving here for the first time to read classics. And, uh, and so let's head up to the door where I think we're expected. Terrified at what he must do, he caught hold of the mullion and sprang. Morris! As he alighted, his name had been called out of dreams. The violence went out of his heart, and a purity that he had never imagined dwelt there instead. His friend had called him. He stood for a moment, entranced. Then the new emotion found him words, and laying his hand very gently upon the pillows, he answered, Clive! Gosh, so we're just passing the Porter's Lodge and entering the front court of Kings. And wow, it is pretty spectacular, isn't it? The famous chapel on the right-hand side dominates the court, but there's a, there's a fountain in the centre of a lawn and beautiful buildings all around. And we're heading to the room that Forster lived in as an undergraduate. He lived outside of college in his first year, and then, like Morris... He moved into college in his second year. And so when we see this room, we can imagine, um, you know, the character of Morris in this very room. So we're stepping into W staircase. You can see the, uh, the painted names on the wall of who's in which room. And here's number seven. Let's have a look. We're stepping into a little set of rooms. There's two rooms. There's a bedroom off to the right with a basin, and then the living room, which we're standing in now, with a fireplace and, uh, and a beautiful sort of mullioned window looking down straight onto the cam. Gosh, it's an incredible view, isn't it? Over to Clare Bridge over there. Gosh, it's quite moving to think of uh, Forster in these rooms. Yeah, absolutely. As a, as a yeah. 19-year-old. Certainly that sense of a, a very tranquil space. And he shared this staircase with a childhood friend who became very important to him here at Cambridge, right? A, a guy called Hugh Meredith, 
who, um, according to Furbank, the biographer, he said Meredith was tall, good-looking and athletic, altogether rather noble in his appearance and intellectually impressive in his quiet-voiced manner. Forster was attracted at once, feeling flattered to be thus singled out, and before long they were in and out of each other's rooms all day. And first it was sort of fun to think of Forster with his friend on the very staircase we've walked up, but that friend Meredith, I think, must have been part of the inspiration for another of the key characters in Morris, Clive Durham. Yeah, that's absolutely true, yeah. Because this is, or at least King's at that stage, was a male-only space, you know. It was, a, it was a very male homosocial space. And this kind of led into or fed into or was part of the culture of the time, um, which was really determined by uh, the huge influence of ancient uh, Greek culture on Oxford and Cambridge. So from the mid-1800s, ancient Greek culture started to be um, rehabilitated in Victorian society and Victorian education, mainly as a response to, you know, the coming of mass democracy uh, and the kind of impending downfall of the class system, which a lot of um, the upper classes considered to be uh, a feminization. Right. Mm. Um, so there's always some element of misogyny within these kind of like the terror of the coming of, of, of the coming feminization. And so they looked back to uh, the ancient Greeks as this uh, masculinist military uh, society, which would somehow kind of buttress uh, British culture and British society and, and, and save it from this kind of dangerous effeminacy. But. The interesting thing that happens, you know, the irony um, is that, you know, in accepting Greek culture and in, in rehabilitating it, Victorian culture also admits same-sex love and descriptions of same-sex love. So you find that pursuit of a masculinist military ideal um, admits through the back door, let's say, um, for want of a better <laughs> phrase, uh, you know, uh, 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 descriptions, representations of same-sex love, which becomes very, very important for people like John Addington Simmons and other dons in Oxford. And then that becomes, you know, exported mm. to, to Cambridge. And that really defines the, the culture that Forster is, is working and living in when he's living in this, these rooms. Although, of course, in the novel, when any passages like that come up in translation, it's, it's, they skip over the unspeakable vice of the Greeks, right? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, uh, to go back to Clive Durham, you know, yes. he's, he's absolutely incensed by this, uh -huh. you know, because he feels that, you know, Greek culture needs to be taken wholesale. And conveniently enough for him, because he has, you know, same-sex desires, that includes representation of the the damnable vice of the Greeks, you know, uh, of these representation of love between men. Um, and how would you describe Clive? How is he, you know, in what ways does he complement and contrast with Morris? They're quite different people, aren't they? So in this period, Hellenism or ancient Greek culture becomes like a kind of homosexual code. And at one point in the novel, you know, Clive turns to Morris and he says, have you read the symposium? <laughs> you know, and it's almost like, are you in? Are you in? Uh, are you in the group? And um, Morris is totally clueless. And, yes, he uh, has you know, and, But he goes, he goes home at the vac at the vacation, and he and he reads the symposium, and he he becomes more educated in the kind of worldview that uh, that Clive represents and and that Clive champions. There's a line in the novel, isn't there, where it says that Clive had never been in any doubt about 
his sexual orientation. I mean, he's, he, he knows that he's gay from a young age, which uh, Morris doesn't. How is it that Morris's sexual awakening happens in this novel? Because it's, it's much more gradual than the, for Clive, I'd say. It's a slow dawning, and I think that, that that's an interesting way to think about sexuality and, and this, uh, this narrative that we have now of coming out, you know. We have so many examples of, of um, you know, queer people saying, like, I always knew that I was gay, you know. Mm. I always, mm. I had these, these feelings when I was younger. But, you know, for some of us, it, it takes a little while, you know. And, and, and sexuality isn't so clear-cut or, or, or as easily understood, especially when we're, we're younger. And maybe especially when we grow up in the suburbs and we're not, we're not you know, we're not exposed to uh, the stimulation or even, Henry, the symposium. <laughs> There's a lovely image, isn't there, that recurs a few times in the first half of the novel where um, Morris starts to feel things, but he says uh, it was all very obscure for the mountains still overshadowed him. And there's this sort of motif of a mountainside. And there's a moment at one point where he imagines reaching up the mountain and a hand reaching down to lift him up. And then when he finally realizes that, yes, he is in love with Clive, there's that sort of just great line where he says, um, the storm had brewed in the obscurities of being when no eye pierces. His surroundings had thickened it. It had burst and he had not died. The brilliancy of day was around him and he stood upon the mountain range that overshadows youth. He saw I, you know, I like that image of sort of the challenge and the excitement of reaching this realization of who he is. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I just love that passage. You know, it's so it's so thrilling, um, but it's also so tied up with mountains. And Henry, could you, if you look out that window, <laughs> are we farther away from the various yes. landscape of mountains um, than than in a place like Cambridge, which is incredibly flat? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's interesting that you should you should take that passage because you know sexuality and the revelation of sexuality and and coming to an, an understanding of who you are uh, as a queer person is contrasted with the space of Cambridge, which is incredibly flat and as I mentioned before, you know, kind of quite cloistered. Mm. Well, and we'll talk later about that contrast between the city and the wildness of the outside. Just before we leave this room, um, there's, a, there's one of the most memorable moments in the film and the book is the co- sort of concluding part of part one, which is after Morris has realised that he is in love with Clive and he grabs hold of the exterior of a college and climbs up to Clive's window and enters it to give him a kiss. And although... It would have been quite a struggle to climb up to this <laughs> top floor window of W staircase. But we could imagine the face of Morris appearing at that window and, and looking in and, um, and hearing Clive mutter his name in his sleep and, and come in to kiss him. So we're walking back through college now to the front court again, where Forster, in his old age had rooms on the side opposite the chapel uh, so very near the front entrance really and today those rooms have been turned into the graduate suite the graduate common room and we're lucky enough to have been allowed into the rooms to see the room where Forster lived his final years Stepping into what's now a little corridor. 
books lining the walls. And gosh, here we are, stepping into Forster's old rooms. Uh, it's okay, Henry. You, you don't need to be impressed. There, <laughs> well, I am. There, there is, there, I mean, you know, so we're surrounded on all sides by um, IKEA sofas and um, in a room that's dominated by a foosball table and an enormous television. It's true. It's true. It does look like a graduate common room, but if you, I feel like if you look beyond those, I can see some things which maybe would have been original to the room. I tell you what, let's, I've got here the description that his, his biographer, Nick Furbank, wrote of this room. In his last chapter of his biography, called E.M. Forster Described, he says, um, it's easiest to picture him in his college room. This was on the first staircase of the front court of Kings, a spacious, high-ceilinged room with tall Victorian Gothic windows, looking out onto a little inner court, which we can see through the windows there. The first thing that caught one's eye in the room was the mantelpiece, designed by his father, an elaborate oaken structure with blue china in its niches, and on its topmost shelf some vases and three large beaten copper platters. Well, that oaken mantelpiece is still there, right? There it is, around the fireplace. I mean, the, the blue china and beaten copper platters have gone, but there's now a little photograph of, of Forster himself, and how remarkable that that very structure was designed by his father. Well, the story goes yeah. that um, Forster said he didn't want his rooms to become a place of pilgrimage. He specifically mm. said he didn't want it to become an antiquated shrine. And when he was, you know, in his final years, yeah. he got rid of most of his possessions. You know, he gave okay. them away to friends or he, he and he tried to give away this enormous, um, really <laughs> incongruous <laughs> monstrosity of a mantelpiece <laughs> to uh, the Victorian Abbott Museum. Really? Yeah. But it's, it's somehow the, the deal uh, fell through. So and, and I think there's something really interesting about that, you know, mm. because he was so committed to kings and to the fellowship of kings. And he kind of he saw him himself as a king's man yeah. so he he didn't want this place to become a space that wouldn't be used right interesting but, but, right so you know a space that would be used by undergraduates and and postgraduates in the years uh -huh. to come aha uh -huh. well in that sense that's definitely what is happening today isn't it i think there's two interesting stories to tell in this room one is um the fact that when he was an undergraduate these rooms belonged to his friend and, and mentor, the tutor, Nathaniel Wedd. And there's a wonderful, um, do, do you know that BBC documentary from 1958, the Monitor um, documentary, where he, there's a film of him coming into this very room and talking about what Wedd suggested to him. So let's hear that now. In this very room where I, where I now am, there was at one time my tutor, a man called Wedd, and it was he who suggested to me, I might write, he did it in the most informal way, he said in a sort of drawling voice, I really don't see why you shouldn't write. And I, being very diffident, was delighted with this remark. And I thought, well, after all, why shouldn't I write? And I did. In that documentary, he also explains why, after a passage to India, he stopped writing novels, you know. So this, this room is both the beginning of his writing career and the place where he comes after that career ends in some ways. I mean, that's not to say that he didn't 
you know, write uh, short stories and essays and, and biographies, but certainly with regards to those large novels that view Edwardian culture and its, and its demise that spelled the end for him. Right. The other story to tell here is, um, is at the end of Forster's life in, in, in May 1970, when um, Nick Furbank, his friend who, as we said later, wrote his biography, um, Furbank describes what happened at 6 p.m., on the 22nd of May 1970, he said, My rooms and kings were on the same staircase as Forster's, and I heard a loud shout and then another. I realized it was Forster and went down, finding him lying on the floor just inside his door. He had fallen in his bedroom and had crawled from there. I went to find a porter, and together we lifted him onto the sofa, and I summoned a doctor. And Furbank quite quickly realized that this was the final stroke that Forster was going to suffer, and he, he died less than two weeks later, in fact. So that's quite extraordinary, isn't it, to think of Forster here both as a young undergraduate and at the very end of his life in these very same rooms. And another thing I think it's worth um, thinking about in these rooms is that when Forster came back to King's, he made contact again with the society known as the Apostles, this secret or secretive Cambridge society of students who meet to discuss philosophy um, their sort of stated aim is the pursuit of truth with absolute devotion and unreserved by a group of intimate friends. And Forster had been a member of the Apostles as an undergraduate. It's through the Apostles that he met Lytton Strachey and Leonard Wolfe, and, and through his friendship with them, it's how he came to know Virginia and Vanessa Stephen, Virginia Wolfe and Vanessa Bell. Uh, that was his connection to the Bloomsbury group, of whom he was a member later. And this society seems to have been very important to him. And I, I could imagine him hosting meetings of it, you know, when he was living in these rooms at the end of his life. And so they discussed many issues openly, including homosexuality, which was probably the first time that he had heard homosexuality discussed. And and, um, that must have been important for him, I think. I mean, we've talked a little about it already, but how do you think Forster viewed his own homosexuality? Well, he was, uh, I mean... It's undeniable he was a late starter. You know, his first sexual encounter was at the age of 37. Right. On a beach with uh, some shadowy stranger. He seemed to, you know, he seemed to have given him a blowjob or something. And, but a few um, years, interestingly, a few years after he wrote Morris. Um, yes, yeah. Morris is in some ways a kind of a working out of, of how he felt. And, and um, um, I mean, one of the criticisms that was leveled at the book when it was finally published, that it was, a, you know, a private yell that was, you know, displayed in public, which, you know, it was very unseemly, I suppose, uh, at that time. Um, so after his encounter then in Alexandria, on the beach in Alexandria at the age of 37, he, he, he you know, not to say that he burst flaming from the closet, but he certainly had more, many more uh, romantic relationships than we might think, you know, um, uh, this shy retiring Cambridge Don, he had quite a lot of sex in London. You know, he had a he had a flat in Bloomsbury, and he took a lot of advice from J. R. Ackerley, who was um, much more liberal, I suppose, with his uh, affections. Um, and he had a relationship with a mixed race bus driver named Reg Palmer. And uh, of course, he met his companion, the love of his life, Bob Buckingham, who was a, a policeman. And with whom he kind of lived in a, a loose menage à trois with um, Buckingham's wife, May. 
so yeah, I mean, he he had an active romantic and sexual life, but it was very confined to outside of Cambridge, you know. Right. Um, none of that went on in Cambridge, which was kind of kept, you know, pristine and 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 out of bounds in some Interesting. ways. Interesting. Well, how extraordinary to be in these rooms, the final rooms that that Forster knew before he died. And when Forster did die, he left his his literary estate to King's. And so King's College owns his manuscripts and many of his letters and and journals. And so, um, amazingly, we've been allowed to visit the archive here and see the original manuscripts of Morris. So let's head down now out into the court and go and go and head to the archive. Right, we're coming down one of the corridors in the archive with plate glass bookshelves on either side. The rather exciting-looking spines on the shelves. We're heading into a room now, and, and Dr. Maguire, Patricia. Hello, nice to Hello. meet you. Hello, nice to meet you. I'm Henry. Hi. Very good to You're meet very you. Very welcome. This is Dr. Hester. Hello, Hello I'm nice Dermot. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Dr. Patricia Maguire is the archivist at King's, and and. Patricia, thank you so much for getting out uh, some of the objects you've got out for us to see today. Should we start with the with the first manuscript that he wrote in 1913-14? Would you be happy to show it to All us? All right, sure. Have a seat. Thank you. So Patricia's brought out um, a large red leather-bound book which contains the typescript of Morris. It's, it's about the size of an, of an atlas. It's huge. Look, I've heard of a. So this is the guard book, and the and the uh, and the pages are, are glued in for I better see. security of the of the document. So this is a typescript of the manuscript that Forster wrote and started in 1913, finished in 1914. Yeah, didn't he? He noted, I think, in in the Lock Diary, the 31st of December 1913, um, Morris is born, but will he ever be happy? Ah, nice line. I mean, Patricia, so this is the one that was sent to Leo Greenwood, is that correct? Leo Greenwood was a, a student at Emmanuel College. That makes sense. Yes, the, the note there says LHG Greenwood's copy with amendments in his hand and EMF's hand. Interesting. So it was given to Greenwood and then like passed out of time for 25 years or something like that and then was found in a disused safe somewhere. <laughs> wow. <laughs> one of them was, certainly. Wow. I'll just um, read this letter because it mentions Greenwood. It's dated the 8th of February, 1915. That was my own novel that I was reading to Dickinson, but Scaldsworthy Lois Dickinson. Uh But it is unfortunately unprintable and indeed unmentionable. Would you care to read it? (laughs) Indeed, I had assumed that you would, and have told Greenwood, who now has the manuscript, to hand it to you, which he will do in a few days. When you have finished it, give it back to him, and please only speak of its existence to him, Dickinson, or Shepherd, as it has to be as dead as a secret can be. I hope you will like it, and whether you do or not, I'd much like a letter from you about it. Gosh, so you really get a sense there of this unknown, the secret manuscript being passed around his friends. As dead as a secret can be. So let's go back a little bit. What what were the circumstances that led to the writing of this manuscript? Well, so the story goes that he went up north uh, with his mother to leave her at Harrogate Spa, where she was to take the cure. And then at that time, decided to go and see Edward Carpenter in Sheffield. 
And so Carpenter was a really important influence on Forster. He studied at Trinity Hall and was a fellow there, which is right beside King's. Mm-hmm. And so Carpenter lived in Sheffield with his partner, George Merrill, and their image of domestic uh, queer bliss, let's say, mm. had a profound impact on Forster. Of course, there's also the story, as he recounts in the terminal note to, yeah. to Morris, that um, George Merrill touched me on my backside and suddenly he got this creative spurt um, <laughs> as a consequence. And, you know, as we've mentioned, he was a bit of a, a slow starter. So, um, you know, he wasn't used to the touch, to kind of like this sensual touch uh, by another man. Apparently, um, George Merrill was quite liberal with his with his touches. <laughs> his touching. Um, so it's this kind of combined influence, I think, of, of that sensuality and that image of domestic happiness, which is the groundwork for Morris, which he starts when he returns. Almost instantly, right, when he got back to Harrogate. Yeah, he he says um, he says that moment of being touched on the backside. Uh, it seemed to go straight through the small of my back into my ideas without involving my thoughts. Uh, if it really did this, it would prove that at that precise moment I had conceived. It's almost like a, yeah, like an impregnation, like a kind of um, giving birth, you know, to this idea of oh an. Oh my, Henry! Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a bolt from the arse, isn't yeah, it? You know, yeah. like. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's. Um, it's a very strange experience for him and a pleasurable one and, and one that kind of opened doors for him, I think, in terms of that. So he wrote Morris pretty quickly. I mean, it, it came, he says it flowed pretty smoothly, you know, once he had that sort of vision that came to him. But then what happened to this manuscript in the years afterwards? We've heard that it, it was circulated privately among friends. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's untrue to say that Morris didn't have a readership before it was published in 1971, it, it, it did circulate among this group of friends and, and really kind of bound them together in this secret, you know. So that included the Bloomsbury set, like uh, Leonard Wolfe and Lytton Strachey and, um, and others like Siegfried Sassoon. But ultimately, it ends up in the hands of, of Christopher Isherwood, who, who sees Forster as, as a mentor and a, as a really cherished elder as we would say in in queer circles you know a queer elder and he is is really the one who encourages uh, Forster to think about publishing this book and Forster asked him when he gave him a copy of it he said he wanted to know does it date you know Mm -hmm. is it too dated to to be published and Isherwood said Yes, it does. It does date. But that's the important part about it, you know? It's an artifact. It's this document. It's, a, it's, a, it's an account of a time that is essential to a queer history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Forster re- referred to the queer past as a great unrecorded history. And a book like this could be part of that, could be part of a record of queer lives. And was it partly the influence of Isherwood that made him go back to the manuscript? Because, Patricia, am I right that in, in the end of the 50s, 1959, 1960, he returned and made some substantial changes to the, uh, to the manuscript? Yes, he retyped it entirely, and we have about mm. five copies all from that same retyping. They're all carbon copies. Right. In fact, is, have you got one here? Would it be possible? Yeah, this to is a top copy from the 1959 version. So there were enough changes that he had to, he had to retype it. Uh-huh. So we're looking at another, here we are, another typescript. Gosh, look. And is this the one, because I think it was at this time that he 
there's a famous note that he put on one of these versions where he wrote at the front, publishable, but worth it, with a question mark. And, uh, and look here, look, dedicated to a happier year is his dedication. Yeah, I mean, one of the changes you can see in, in this version of it was that um, under Isherwood's influence, it was a little bit more sexy. Right. Um, and of course, you know, he, by this point, he had had some kind of sexual experience. Of course, yes. um, it wasn't, you know, just a purely theoretical or fantastical kind of imagined fantasy for him. Yeah. We mentioned earlier that uh, after A Passage to India, published in 1924, he never published another novel in his lifetime in the 45 years he, he lived after that. And his friend Nick Furbank thinks that part of the reason for that might have been the various frustrations attaching to Morris. He says, to have written a novel that could not be published, for it is certainly true that in 1914 it could not have been, to know at the back of his mind that it might have been a better novel if it had been written for publication, and to find that having written it, he was after all no nearer writing a publishable novel, and finally to reflect, as he must have done then, that he had written about homosexual love affairs as a substitute for having one. There is no need to look further for the cramp that D.H. Lawrence diagnosed in him in 1915. And, gosh, that's a, it, it's kind of you know, sad to see this typescript here today, which Forster would have worked on and, and never saw it out in the world during his lifetime. And, and worked on repeatedly, right. you know. I mean, it wasn't like he put it away in a drawer and forgot about it, you know. It was mm. a kind of persistent concern, like, what am I, what am I to do with this? Um, and you could imagine that being a, a hindrance to creativity if you sort of feel like you haven't given birth to this other project but still sort of there in your head gosh Patricia it's such a privilege to see these typescripts here how do you feel as the archivist here you know stewarding these typescripts in what ways do you celebrate Forster's memory here well we ended up with his copyright and people Mm. are still paying us to print especially translations of his all his novels so King's is proud of him and grateful to him and still owes him and is keeping on top of his legacy, if you like. Mm -hmm. I think we try to consider kind of what Forrester would want on certain Mm. projects that were asked to approve. He did at one time say he didn't want his works to be reproduced electronically. So, Mm. you know, he died in 1970, which was when photocopying was starting to, to come online. And you know, he's very big on humans mm. as opposed to machines. And at that time, he was thinking, oh, I really don't want to have all this mass-produced sort of inhuman stuff. I mean, photocopies are kind of inhuman Gosh. in some ways. So nowadays, we have to make the decision, are we going to make scans of these when people ask us for copies for scholarship and research? Mm-hmm. Are we going to let people take their own digital photos? And we, we thought about it and decided he probably would have not wanted to stand in people's way. Yes, good point, yeah. Is there anything else we should look at while we're here, Patricia? Locked we, yes, look, let's sort of a locked journal over here, which literally has a lock on it. It's, it's the most exciting-looking journal I've ever seen. It was originally a relations book. So Patricia's laying out now this beautiful hard-back, um, sort of maroon, battered leather-bound book with a proper sort of brass clasp with a lock on it. Like, you could really keep this book secret. And he, he starts, uh, the first page we've got here is in block capitals that says, Private. 
Wow, yeah, underlined. I mean, we've seen a lot of those private signs around Cambridge today, haven't we? You know, keep out. True. No trespassing. True. Well, I'm sorry, Ian Forster, we're opening the page, looking inside. The first, he's put a poem on the next page, which begins, Incurious at the window, I watch the regiment pass, monotonous in khaki, monotonous as grass. Again, looking through a window, it's like he's mm. uh, on the inside looking out the outside looking in so what was what did he use this journal for well i mean he recorded all of his uh, like confidential thoughts private thoughts about friends uh, he records the meeting with bob buckingham uh-huh. he um records the birth of bob buckingham's son uh who would become his his godson right. um which indicates just how close they were you know as a family really yeah. um gosh look at that a huge question mark yeah. filling an almost half a page this question mark is reminiscent to me of the something written on the mirror in... the f- it's the film of room with a view yeah. i don't think it's in the novel but in the film george emerson draws a big uh, question mark um, yeah so many unformable questions. Mm. So did he keep other journals? Did he turn to this one when he had something particularly secret to record? Is that the impression we get? He wrote in this diary fairly regularly for a few years with his intimate thoughts. He also kept diaries when he was traveling and when he was at King's um, about day-to-day things, but yeah. this was the more intimate thoughts. And after a while, he just started having an annual review. So sometimes you'll just see the December 31st, what, where am I? What have I done this year? Right. Because that was his birthday. Okay. This particular entry with the question mark is a December 31st one. And it relates to Masood, I think. One of, one of the great loves of his life, Masood. He writes, brought this book to review a remarkable year, but have not the spirits. And though I do believe it is all right, my breast burns suddenly and I've felt ill. He has sent me such a horrid, ugly birthday present. <laughs> uh, tray, with tray with candlestick, matchbox and ceiling wax rest. Colourless message inside. Probably just before my letter reached. And then in brackets, love, love. And then a huge question mark. Gosh. I think he was taking it out on the present. I don't think it was probably <laughs> as ugly as all that. It was his disappointment. Yeah, yeah. So Sayyid Masood, the relationship was another one of those unconsummated ones. Um, and yeah, these declarations of, of attachment and love and so on without any um, physical component, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's very hard to read. Mm. Oh gosh, there was a sign saying mother died. Look, mother died March 11th in large letters. That was 1945 she died. And it was because of her death, of course, that he came to King's because it was just at that time, almost by coincidence, that um, he was invited to be an honorary fellow. And because he had to um, move out of the house where he'd lived with his mother, he was invited to come and live in Cambridge. Gosh, well... Patricia, it's such a privilege to have seen, you know, these very intimate manuscripts, some of which are still secret, some of which, um, you know, remain secret throughout his life until they could be published. Thank you so much for opening up the archive for us today. It's, it's been an absolute honour to see these. 
My pleasure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Their love scene drew out, having the inestimable gain of a new language. No tradition overawed the boys. No convention settled what was poetic, what absurd. They were concerned with a passion that few English minds have admitted, and so created untrammeled. Something of exquisite beauty arose in the mind of each at last. Something unforgettable and eternal but built of the humblest scraps of speech and from the simplest emotions. Okay, so we're just leaving King's now, and like Morris, we're going to head out of Cambridge because, of course, he's sent down at one point in the novel um, by Mr Cornwallis, the Dean of King's, and this means he has to leave the city, and um, really it's only just after he and Clive have sort of acknowledged their love for each other and... And Clive knows that this is a big turning point. He realises that he and Morris would never meet in Cambridge again. Their love belonged to it, and particularly to their rooms, so that he could not conceive of their meeting anywhere else. So we've hopped in a cab now, and we're winding through the streets of Cambridge, about to head out into the countryside around. And David, I wonder if this would be a good moment to talk about so I suppose one of the strangest moments in the novel the real sort of turning point in the novel and that is the change that comes over Clive Durham when he seems to become heterosexual and how do you interpret that in the novel and you know why do you think Forster does that to Clive? Well it's a it's a capitulation to the requirements of a heterosexist society isn't it you know I mean this kind of turn as you're talking about this change comes after his visit to Greece and in Greece he uh, presumably you know because it's not explicitly outlined confronts the reality of the fact that the, the ancient Greece that he would have studied when he was in college when he was in Cambridge 
with its endorsement of same-sex love between men is not a reality and he must have felt in Greece the the irretrievable nature of that kind of perspective and that kind of um, society, right? And the, the theory of it, you know, contrasts with the reality. So he comes back to England and realises that it, it's an untenable kind of idea that he's had. Now I'd say that, you know, it is very explicitly outlined as a uh, as a renunciation, right, and a kind of capitulation to straight society. It's not like Clive is bisexual, right, and that he loses love for Morris and falls in love with someone else. You know, he's simply too afraid to break with the conventions of the time. Mm. I, it's yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like Forster presents it in in slightly conflicting ways. Because when it's first presented. It's described as being a, a blind alteration of the life spirit and a, some kind of announcement which says, you who loved men will henceforward love women. And it's almost like a psychological, almost like a physiological change. But then, tellingly, you know, quite soon after that, he says uh, that Clive had not gained a sense but rearranged one. And I think that's much more like how, you know, the way you're describing it, that it's actually a, an active renunciation and a decision on Clive's part to turn his back on that aspect of his sexuality. So rather than, you know, following his desires, he denies them. Yeah. And when Clive and Morris have their kind of showdown, when Clive has made this decision and, and Morris is speechless, one of the things Morris says to Clive is, Clive, you're in a muddle. And I think that word is such a Forster word, isn't it? Well, yeah, and you could possibly read this idea of a model into Forster as well, you know. But he, he in some ways, he was able to separate out that model by compartmentalizing. And, you know, this, this kind of compartmentalizing of one's life, you know, one's love life and one's kind of everyday life, which in Forster can be mapped onto the spaces of Cambridge and London. That's a trope where it comes to queer, especially queer men, in the years before gay liberation. A little noise sounded. A noise so intimate that it might have arisen inside his own body. He seemed to crackle and burn and saw the ladder's top quivering against the moonlit air. The head and the shoulders of a man rose up, paused, a gun was leant against the windowsill very carefully, and someone he scarcely knew moved towards him and knelt beside him and whispered, Sir, was you calling out for me? So we've just stepped out of a taxi in the little village of Maddingley, just outside Cambridge, and we're walking through some rather grand gates past a little lake and up towards a very impressive-looking country house, Maddingley Hall. It's a 16th-century building, which um, actually in the 19th century, Queen Victoria rented it for her son, Edward, the Prince of Wales, future King Edward VII, when he was an undergraduate at Cambridge. So we've seen some quite grand rooms, and this is uh, probably the nicest accommodation any undergraduate has had. And for us, it's going to stand in for Penge, Clive Durham's house in Wiltshire. Now, at Penge, 
Morris meets another character. Forster later said that when uh, he had this vision of the novel Morris when he was visiting Edward Carpenter, he said the general plan and the three characters all rushed into my pen. So, Dermot, who is the third? We've, we've met Morris, we've met Clive. Who is the third character that he's talking about there? Oh, Henry. The third character is Alex Scudder. You know, we've spoken about the relationship between Clive and Morris and this kind of, you know, very theoretical uh, Greek love that was a little physicality about it. But Alec comes into Morris's life and is, is really direct in terms of what he wants. You know, he says, stay with me tonight and I know a place. He's very passionate. Um, he's very roughly spoken. And he's a gamekeeper at Penge, and their first night together is spent in in Morris's bedroom when he was visiting Clive and his new bride mm-hmm. at Penge. Now, I suppose you could say there's a kind of exoticization of a lower class character here, where he's perhaps not so civilized, he's not so uh, constrained by society, so therefore he can be more in touch with his desires, his passions. There's less of that scrim between him and, and what he wants. But, you know, when you look at Forrester's life, he had a lot of, you know, working class lovers uh-huh. um, and uh, lovers who were men of colour. But at the same time, you know, it didn't seem to ever be a fetishization in that sense. It was more he was just very interested in people and he was very interested in people who were different from him and who had, uh, you know, different experiences in their lives. And, you know, Morris found that with Alex Scudder. And of course... Um you know, he had the idea for the novel when he was visiting Edward Carpenter and George Merrill, Edward Carpenter's partner, was from a much lower social class to Carpenter. So there was a model straight away of this this kind of cross-class relationship. I think Forster later said that Alex Scudder, the character, started as an emanation from Millthorpe. He is the touch on the backside. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, but that's interesting because Lytton Strachey mm. um, read a manuscript of the novel, as we've seen, and he his verdict on the novel was, you know, well, this is a, a myth. You know, Morris and Alec were from such different social backgrounds that he prophesied a rupture within six months. But the funny thing is, you know like George Merrill and, and Edward Carpenter weren't a myth. Right. You know, there, there, were, there was yeah. a very real yeah. uh, example that he was drawing from. You know, we talked earlier about the, the window scene at King's where Morris climbs up to Clive's window and hears Clive muttering Morris's name in uh, his sleep and climbs in through the window. There's a kind of mirror scene at Penge, right? When it's a, it's a little bit unbelievable, but Forster has Morris in his sleep walk over to the window, throw the window open and shout, come. And then he's shouted this word into the night. And the next thing he knows, Alec is climbing in through the window. Yeah, and and their, you know, their relationship is consummated as opposed to the previous scene where he climbs in through the window of Clive's room and then gives him a chaste peck and then returns out the window again, you know. Forster presents sex in a very pretty upfront way, doesn't he? I mean, he said at one point there's no pornography in this book. And it's true that the sex itself happens sort of just off stage. It's always sort of between chapters or, you know, it's either just happened or about to happen. But 
nonetheless, it's a very, it's a sexy book, right? Like, you, you know, you could, those feelings are right on the surface. And, you, you know, it reminds me of that thing Catherine Mansfield said about Howard's End, where she says, um, Forster never gets any farther than warming the teapot. He's a rare fine hand at that. Feel this teapot. Is it not beautifully warm? Yes, but there ain't going to be no tea. <laughs> and uh, I think what she means is in Howard's End, it's sort of, you know, you sort of get, he never quite sort of faces sexuality and, you know, up front. But I feel like he does in, in Morris. And, and actually where it is kind of subliminal or, or sort of off stage, it almost, that is erotic in itself. Uh, yeah, I, think, I mean, so. you know, some of the most uh, romantic and, and erotic moments are those which aren't dealt with directly, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I think that's certainly something that Forster knows. But at the same time, you know, the book also has a lot of the kind of thrilling, exciting, physical description of things, which to me is is so wonderful about the book. Uh-huh. Just talking about Alec, um, it's interesting to me that David Levitt, who writes the introduction to the Penguin Classics edition, he's very down on the film. He, he says that he thinks all the Merchant Ivory adaptations sort of emasculate Forster's novels and, and sort of desexualize them. But... Um, I don't know. The film is pretty pretty sexy, isn't it? <laughs> I think the film is important. I think, yes, you know, sure, it, ha- it has its flaws. Um, I'm sorry, David Levitt. It does, you know, it has its flaws, you're right. But at the same time, you know, I think it's really important when we think about, you know, Merchant Ivory as this duel that had such a huge cultural impact in the 1980s, sure. you know? And, you know, that film came out in 1984? Seven, I think. 1987. Yeah. And, you know, that is a few years into the AIDS crisis. Um, and so what you have in that film, putting it alongside the other Merchant Ivory films, is, is a serious consideration of, of gay love and of the psychology of queer men. And I think that that's important. You know, for a film like that to have come out in 1987 is remarkable, I think. And to have been so widely seen. Right, yes. That's a really good point, yeah. Well, let's let's head out of these um, beautiful but rather sculpted grounds of Maddingley Hall and head into what we might, or what Forster might have called, the Greenwood and talk about that. Let's head back towards the entrance. So we, we've crossed over the busy road and we're just heading into quite a n- new area of woodland. It's called the 800 Years Wood because it was planted in 2009 to mark the 800th anniversary of the University of Cambridge. But Diamond, what what is this green wood that Forster talks about? Well, uh, the green wood is, is, is an imagined place, mm-hmm. you know. So at the end of the novel, Morris and Alec... Uh, step off the page and their destination at least according to Forster was the Greenwood now the Greenwood has this kind of long history as a kind of an idyllic space of outlawry uh-huh. um, Lytton Strachey um, when he read the manuscript of the novel uh, he kind of denounced this idea of returning to a Sherwood forest right. so that's what the Greenwood is really it's this kind of space beyond civilization, uh, an imagined kind of space of outlawry and that's where uh, Forster deposits his, his two characters or, or rather you know, sends them off at the end of the novel to reach the Greenwood and that has this kind of utopian uh, as I say, idyllic quality, and also is tinged with his re- his 
recollections of you know Millthorpe, which is where mm-hmm. uh, uh, Edward Carpenter and George Merrill lived. Yes, a kind of um, yeah, a kind of safe space, an oasis in 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 the Edwardian world that he was writing in. Yeah, I mean, there is that um, original ending of Morris. Uh-huh. A little which, epilogue, right? But. Yeah, the epilogue, which was uh, mercifully cut from, uh, <laughs> from the final edition that you'll find in Penguin Classics, is where uh, Morris's sister goes cycling in the countryside and happens upon these two lumberjacks um, cutting wood, and she recognises one of them as as Morris, which goes to show you, Henry, that the 1980s gay clone aesthetic had a prehistory in <laughs> in Forster. Um, so the book is, is is relevant, if for no other reason than that. <laughs> and it's an interesting idea, isn't it? It runs through the book that um, quite often Morris thinks, I long for darkness... Not the darkness of a house, but the darkness where one can be free. Or he says the forests and the night were on his side. And there's that quite chilling moment where he, um, where he at one point attempts hypnotism to kind of cure himself of his sexuality. And the doctor says to him at one point, you must remember that your type was once put to death in England. And Morris responds, was it really? On the other hand, they could get away. England wasn't all built over and policed. Men of my sort could take to the greenwood. So it's this sort of, sort of stepping outside of reality almost, isn't it, into a kind of parallel world of, of freedom and liberation. Well, it was a place that did exist, as I, as we've talked about with Carpenter, and um, but it was always associated with Carpenter, you know, in in that terminal note where Forster reflects on the creation of Morris, he says that Carpenter died and so did the Greenwood. Uh-huh. But in actual fact, Forster's Greenwood survived. So it turns out that Forster owned a little place um, near Guildford, a little wood he called My Wood, four acres of oaks and sweet chestnut and beech trees, which nobody really knew that he had, but he used to go there from time to time. And it was finally revealed in his will when he bequeathed it to the National Trust. And that's, um, it's still, you can still visit it today. It's called Piney Cops. And uh, as I say, yes, yeah, just east of Guildford. How amazing. He kept safe a little patch of the greenwood. Uh, yeah, a little, a little piece of the greenwood which wouldn't be paved wow. over. So we've picked our way into Maddingley Wood and we're now in a rather unusual place. It's, it was once a chalk pit, I think, a, you know, sort of where chalk was dug out. It's now a, a kind of declivity, a dell within the wood, full of trees and, and undergrowth. And this very spot was very significant for Forster. In the diary he kept in his first year as an undergraduate, he wrote, May 1898, went for a short ride up the Maddingley Road, walked into old chalk pit full of young trees. So here we are. And then it was in the longest journey that this pit really comes to life. This is how Forster describes it. He says, A little this side of Maddingley, to the left of the road, there is a secluded dell paved with grass and planted with fir trees. When Ricky was up, it chanced to be the brief season of its romance, a season as brief for a chalk pit as a man, its divine interval between the bareness of boyhood 
and the stuffiness of age. The dell became for him a kind of church, a church where indeed you could do anything you liked, but where anything you did would be transfigured. And dear, but I, I just have a hunch that when Forster was imagining these hidden greenwood spaces in Morris, I just feel like this place must have been part of that imagining for him. It's kind of cut off from the world. It's, it's, it's away from the road, but it's very near, but it's cut off by this bank. We can hardly see the road. And I like to think of Morris and Alec maybe, you know, still living in a place not too dissimilar to this. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it has that very um, peaceful, secluded element to it, you know. And it's also within reach of Cambridge. Because Forster had this ambivalent relationship to Cambridge. He said it was the nursery of great causes, but not their home. Mm. And... And he also said that he loved the place, but he was also detached from it. Mm. And so, I mean, I think that he cleaved to the spaces of Cambridge, but also having somewhere like this to come and visit, which has an element of the Greenwood to it, I think he would have loved that. Uh One of the things which really helped Forster become famous was when the American novelist and critic Lionel Trilling wrote a study of his work. And one of the things Trilling says is that Fawcett is for me the only living novelist who can be read again and again and who at each reading gives me what few novelists can give us after our first days of novel reading, the sensation of having learned something. And for me, that's what I really love about Forster is that he's writing just before the height of modernism, you know, before Mrs. Dalloway's written, before... Ulysses comes along and there's still some distance between him and his novels and and that's what I love because there's a as you're reading him you you, you have this sense of a of a sort of avuncular presence of someone who's very humane and wise sitting alongside you as you're reading and I think uh, you know reading a novel like A Room with a View or like Morris it is a kind of guide for life and and one of Forster's friends William Plummer the editor and novelist said that if he had read Morris as a young teenager it would have been something to steer by and I feel like it can still serve that purpose today. Well David it's been such a pleasure exploring Kings and Cambridge and and the countryside around with you today and I wonder just to finish how why would you encourage listeners who haven't read Morris to go back to it what has it got to say to us today? Uh, Well okay so on the one hand Morris is this timeless story, which is a sympathetic account of, of a young man and his attempt to find out who he is and, and to live authentically. But on the other hand, you know, it's a story very much based in one particular time and, and, and it reveals to us the conditions of society at that time and the persecution of a certain sector of society who were criminalised for their desires. Um, And I think that's instructive, you know. It shows us that, in some ways, queer history is everyone's history. It shows us what society does to those who are different and hopefully will help us to to change that. For me personally, I I think Morris is, is wonderful because it's a window into the soul of one of the greatest novelists the English language has ever produced. Oh, what a wonderful sentiment. 
Dermot, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. That's a wonderful place to end today's episode. And um, thank you very much for joining us on, on the road. Thanks so much for having me along on the journey. Many thanks to Dr. Diarmid Hester, to Dr. Patricia Maguire and the King's College Archive, to Philip Isaac, Jonty Carr and Sergio Russo of King's College, to Audible for the clips of Ben Wishaw reading from Morris, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. Another clip from that 1958 BBC documentary, where Forster talks about the legacy he would like to have left behind. Anyone who's cared to read my books will see what a high value I attach uh, to personal relationships and to tolerance. And I may add to pleasure. Pleasure one's not supposed to talk about in public, however much one enjoys it privately. But if, my, if I have had any influence, I should be very glad that it had induced people to enjoy this wonderful world into which we are born, and of course to help others to enjoy it too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.